All right, join me in reading God's Word today. We're reading from Acts 10. I'll give you a minute to turn there. All right. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Then the angel who spoke to him had departed, and he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to whether the Simon who was called Peter was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, a spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down, and to the men he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose, and he went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. For when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear what you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, with power. And we and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, 
who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him and all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles, where they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you today. If we haven't met before, my name is Peter. I have the privilege of serving as one of the deacons here at the Mountain Church. Uh, and I'm super excited that I get to preach to you today. So thanks for being here. Uh, as the, uh, our beautiful friend Caroline, my wife, just read, uh, we are going to be looking at the, the entire chapter of uh, Acts 10. Uh, and as you may have figured out from the long reading, uh, this is a really big passage today. And not just because this is the uh, longest, uh, sorry, I already lost the word I was going to say. Wow. Longest narrative, there we go. Not only because this is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, but this, this chapter is full of stuff. Uh, this is when we see the gospel first come to the Gentiles. Uh, and this, this fact, the gospel coming to the Gentiles, should be a big deal to us. Because at least to my knowledge, I think that we are all Gentiles, meaning that we are not of Jewish descent. I might be wrong in that, but I think for the most part I might be right. Uh, and so this moment we're going to study today is the history lesson of how God chose to first deliver the message of salvation through Jesus to non-Jewish people and for them to be saved and receive the Holy Spirit. And in this story today, we see God expand his chosen people from just the nation of Israel to all who believe in Jesus and have faith in him. Uh, and we're also going to see in this passage what I can only imagine was a pretty mind-blowing moment for the Apostle Peter. Uh, this guy's about to have a core piece of his own identity uh, completely rocked, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, the way that he has lived his life is going to become irrelevant because of his salvation through Jesus. And along with these things, I think we also see the full effective retirement uh, of the Mosaic Covenant, was what was the structure of the relationship between God and his people, and the, the full institution of the new Messianic Covenant through Jesus. And before we dive into our text this morning, I just want to do a quick recap of what the Mosaic Covenant was. For any of you who don't know, for any of you who might need a quick refresher, uh, as I think that that will help you understand what we're talking about a little more here today. So, as I said, the Mosaic Covenant was essentially the agreement made between God and his people, uh, between Israel and God. And God gives a total of 613 commandments, which comprise what's called the law. Uh, and God tells Israel that if they follow these commandments, if they follow the law, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And the law served many purposes. Uh, first, it allowed God to dwell among the people of Israel, even though they were sinners. Uh, it also set Israel apart from the nations around them as being distinct and, and holy to the Lord. Uh, and the law had all sorts of types of commands in it. Uh, there were things to do and things not to do on the Sabbath. 
there were proper ways of how you were to relate to your husband, to your wife, to your, to your children, uh, to your, your neighbors and your workers. Uh, there were things to avoid so that you didn't become unclean. And there were things to do if you did become unclean to become clean again. There were rules for justice when wrongdoing took place. And there were a whole bunch of rules on how and when to give sacrifices to God. And God tells Israel that if they followed these commandments, that they would be his people and he would be their God and that he would bless them. <clears throat> but he also says that if they failed to do these things, that there would be a whole list of bad things that would happen to them instead of the blessings. Uh, and if you were curious after the sermon today, you want to go look those up for yourself, you can find all those blessings and curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, we already have a very long passage, so I'm not going to read that this morning. Uh, but this last piece of the Mosaic Covenant, the fact that it was conditional, that God would, uh, would bless the people of Israel if they obeyed these commandments, is something that actually sets this covenant apart from other covenants that we see in Scripture. In other covenants, God pours out blessings or makes promises uh, without asking for anything in return. We see this uh, with God's covenant with Noah after the flood, that God promises never again to flood the earth in the same way. And that's whether or not people sin against him. There's no condition there. Uh, we see in the covenant with Abraham that God promises to make Abraham into great nations, that his descendants will outnumber the stars and the grains of sand uh, on the earth, that he will give his people a land, and that he will bless all the nations of earth through Abraham's descendants. And once again, he asks for nothing in return of Abraham. And the list goes on. But with this covenant, with the Mosaic covenant, God tells Israel that if they want to be his people, they need to follow these rules. So, rewinding a little bit now, in our passage today, I think we see the, the essential retirement of the remainder of this Mosaic covenant and the full institution of the new Messianic covenant in Jesus. Let's dive in. All right, picking up again, or starting, in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, giving alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So we start by introducing this new guy named Cornelius. And what do we know about Cornelius? It says Cornelius is a centurion, and that he is a devout man who feared God and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So being a centurion, uh, Cornelius would have been a man of high station and rank. He would have had about 100 soldiers underneath his command. And then that extra line there of being part of the Italian cohort, it means he was just part of a larger faction of like 600 to 1,000 people. Um, but he's also described, more interestingly, as a, a God-fearing man, or uh, as the commentaries noted him, as a God-fearer. Uh, this most likely means that he would have been a Gentile who worshiped the God of Israel and was likely even connected in some way to a Jewish synagogue, but that he would not have been, uh, he would not have actually undergone the Jewish rites of conversion. So he was still fully Gentile, but he was someone who acknowledged the God of Israel, who worshiped the God of Israel, uh, and possibly even participated in some synagogue affairs, activities. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and verse 3 says that about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. 
He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So what is happening here? It says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Is God rewarding Cornelius here for his good works? Are the things that Cornelius has done so impressive to God that he earned, uh, he earned an audience with an angel of the Lord? That doesn't really sound right, does it? <laughs> I think the key term here is that Cornelius' prayers and alms had ascended as a memorial before the Lord. One commentary put it this way, the term memorial is connected to sacrifices in the Old Testament. The priest would burn a part of the grain offering as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Pleasing aroma is repeated numerous times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers to signify when the Lord recognizes and accepts a sacrifice. The fact that Cornelius' prayers and alms were a memorial points to the reality that God is interested not primarily in grain or sheep and cattle for that matter, but in the heart of the one who brings the sacrifice. An Israelite could bring sacrifices all day long, but if the worshiper was not faithful to the Lord, then his sacrifices would mean nothing. True sacrifice is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And apparently by, by saying this, Cornelius, God is saying that he sees this type of spirit and heart in him. But Cornelius' good deeds can't save him, right? Even if he has a, a, an offering that is pleasing to, the, to God, only God can save him. And in this instance, God is going to choose to send him to Peter to receive his gospel. So when the angel who spoke to Cornelius had departed, verse 7 says, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related to them, related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And this is a really interesting section coming up here. Uh, verse 10 says, And Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And here we have our mind-blowing moment for Peter in our passage. Imagine having your life, living your life by a set of rules. Rules that were ingrained into you from birth. They were taught to you in school. They were taught to you by your parents. They were taught to you in church. They were taught to you by your nation as being important. Rules that were so important, they were literally the framework for your society. And then all of a sudden, one day, the same person, God here in this story, uh, who came up with those rules, who in instituted them as being important, says they don't matter anymore. In fact, he commands you to deliberately break one of those rules right away after making this proclamation. How would you respond to that? I feel like I would be at a loss. Uh, we probably wouldn't respond too differently from Peter, right? Uh, verse 14 tells us, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. <laughs> and it's so interesting that even though Peter had been taught personally by Jesus, he had received the Holy Spirit uh, he had powerfully preached the gospel, performed multiple miracles in the name of Jesus, that taking this next step in the kingdom challenges him to the core of his being. 
To be Jewish meant to strictly follow the, the code of what to eat and what to avoid. An entire chapter of Leviticus spells these things out in vast detail. And it has not occurred to Peter that following Jesus uh, would, mean that a new, would mean a new way of looking at virtually everything that he holds dear. As a boy, Peter would have heard the Old Testament stories. Uh, he would have sung the Psalms, attended synagogue, and only food that had been authorized by the law would have touched his lips. And now the same God who set those rules tells him to eat everything. As I was thinking about this part of the passage, uh, an episode of the show How I Met Your Mother popped into my mind. So indulge me for a moment. But uh, it's uh, the main character, Ted, and his, his best friend, Marshall, are at a breakfast buffet. And uh, there's bacon there. And you know, there's some comment made about eating the bacon, and Ted goes, oh, I can't, I'm allergic to bacon. And Marshall goes, Ted, I've been telling you for years that you're not allergic to bacon. That's something that your mom made up to make you eat healthy as a kid. Ted says, no, 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 Marshall. I'm just allergic to a lot of things. Bacon, donuts, Halloween candy, not saying thank you. Then he, his mind, you know, he has his mind is going, oh my gosh, she lied to me. And then he gets, he gets a piece of bacon. He's like, I guess I'm going to try it. And he gets to take his first bite of bacon. And the gates of heaven open and the glory of the Lord shines down on him as he savors the sweet, savory taste of that bacon. And you know, I hadn't thought about it before, but this is actually a little more connected to our patches than I thought, because <laughs> what else does Peter get to do now? He gets to eat bacon. <laughs> oh, God is good. I mean, really, when you think about it, the hierarchy of the gifts we receive from God is like salvation and bacon, right? No, that, I'm, that was a step too far. I'm kidding on that one. Um, all of that to say, though, this would have been a very big deal for Peter. This would have been mind-blowing. It would have completely changed the way he lived his life, as well as reshaped what it meant for him to live according to God's will. And there's a lot more to say on this topic, and we're going to come back to it later on, but we're going to continue on in our text for now. So continuing in verse 17, he says, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Peter's still processing what in the world this vision is all about. What did this mean? Uh, and now he's being commanded to go with these guys uh, and to accompany these, these random people that just showed up at the house he's staying at. But Peter obeys the command right away. And not only does Peter go, but he brings along some of the, of the fellow believers from Joppa. Uh, and, and now our text is switching back to Cornelius again. We kind of have a back and forth thing going on here. Uh, and while Cornelius' men are traveling to go get Peter, Cornelius has been gathering his family and friends to come hear what Peter has to say. I mean, you have to imagine this guy would have been pretty excited too, right? Cornelius, he is a Gentile, and he was visited by an angel of God. 
And now he's, he's being told to send for one of the leaders of the followers of Jesus. So as someone who might be excited would do, he is gathering together everyone close to him because he wants them to hear too these things that Peter's going to have to say. And we see his excitement even more in verses 25 to 27. He says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand, stand up. I to him a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He sees Peter and literally falls down at his feet. That would be a little awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, now, we don't know exactly what was going through Cornelius' head in this moment, but based on what we know of Cornelius, what God says of Cornelius, of, of the, the alms and prayers that he offers, of the, the reference he makes to uh, the Cornelius' offerings are memorial, most commentaries in agreement that it was very likely Cornelius wasn't actually worshiping Peter here. That would kind of go against what we know of his character from the passage. More likely, Cornelius was showing Peter an act of reverence and respect as being one of the, the leaders of the church, a leader uh, of the leaders of the followers of Jesus, and he was honoring him as a messenger of God. Uh, but Peter, leaving no room for any misinterpretation, picks him up and assures him that he is just a man. And here's where we start to get into the real meat of this passage. Verse 28, Peter says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? It would appear as though Peter had a little time to do some pondering on his way to Caesarea, right? <laughs> he is perplexed after the, after the vision, rightfully so. But now he speaks clearly that God, what, he communicates what he feels God has shown him, that he should not call anyone common or unclean. And he uses an interesting contrast here when talking about this. He says in verse 28 that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. And what's extra interesting to me is as I was doing my, my study on this passage, I found that there wasn't actually an Old Testament law, an Old Testament law to be specific, that would have prohibited Peter from doing this. Uh, he would not have been breaking any law by associating with or visiting a non-Jew. The laws that he would have been breaking were extra biblical laws, laws put in place by Jewish authorities uh, that, were, that were above and beyond what God called the people of Israel to do. And in this case, it seems that this law was put in place to avoid uh, possibly becoming unclean. It was like an extra safety measure to, to just, let's just, oh, if we don't want to become unclean, let's just go even further this way and just totally avoid uh, Gentiles so that we don't become unclean. Since non-Jews did not follow the same laws and rules as Jewish people, they ate unclean foods, uh, and they did things that uh, if a Jew would have done would, would, would have caused a Jew to become unclean. By being near them, they could come in contact with them. They could accidentally be served food that wasn't prepared the right way or that was unclean. And so it was safer to them, apparently, to avoid them altogether. So Peter has broken common day Jewish practices by coming to Cornelius and Caesarea. Why? Because he understood what God was telling him in this vision. There is no longer clean and unclean. 
What God has determined to be clean, let no man call unclean or common. Yes, God used the illustration of food rather than people in the vision, and whether or not that had a correlation to these uh, extra biblical laws that Peter references, we don't know. But in verse 15, God says, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. So Peter obeyed the call to follow these men back to Caesarea and, uh, and to preach the gospel to them, as we're going to see next. So Peter asked them to, to share why, why they have sent for him. And again, Cornelius gives an account of the, the vision that he had from the angel of the Lord, of the message that he was given and that he was asked to send for Peter. And Peter responds in verse 44, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who hears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter obeyed God's command to go to a place where he previously would not have been permitted to go because of the modern day Jewish laws. And when he arrives, he gets to present a complete and concise telling of the gospel of Jesus for the first time to Gentile people. A gospel not just for the Jews, but for all, he says. He gives a brief introduction, and then Peter reviewed Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and his return as judge, and his offer of salvation. And he concludes by saying that all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone, not only Jews, but everyone. And it's interesting to note, too, uh, as this is Peter's first sermon, I believe, to Gentile people, the first time the gospel has come to them, the differences between this sermon and previous sermons that he's, that he's given. What he says about Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the work of Jesus, that doesn't change. That is, that is fact. That is immovable and unchangeable throughout the New Testament. But what does, what does change is the conviction that Peter shares in the call of the gospel that he, he gives them here. When preaching to the Jewish people or the Jewish council, to the Pharisees, he condemns them of their sin of crucifying Jesus on the cross. He calls them to account for their sin of, of killing the son of God, among other things. And then he exclaims that even though they killed Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is the source of salvation and redemption. But the Gentiles didn't kill Jesus, did they? The Jews did. Yes, it was the Romans who crucified him, but it was the Jews that put him there. It was the Jewish leaders who conspired against Jesus to have him arrested and insisted on his crucifixion. But even without this 
condemnation, even without this uh, conviction. In verse 42, Peter says that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The Gentiles may not have crucified Jesus, but they are certainly included among the people that Christ proclaims he has the authority over to be the judge of. And then just as previous times of sharing the gospel, Peter continues with the message of salvation and repentance through Jesus. He says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And once again, let's point out the emphasis on the word everyone who believes. Everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't that amazing? Uh, And we see the proof of this this statement that Peter has made in the very next verse. Uh, In verse 44, it says, And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And that's the end of what I was going to read. Sorry. <laughs> they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter is mid-sermon here, and he is, he's just proclaimed that all who believe in Jesus will have the forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit literally interrupts him to descend on all those who heard and believe. <laughs> Wouldn't that be crazy? Mid-sermon and the Holy Spirit, just boom, Holy Spirit just descends. Sorry, I didn't have that in my notes. Um, <laughs> but this is yet another mind-blowing passage here, not for Peter this time, but for the, the fellow believers that he brought with him, who were, it says, of the circumcised party, meaning that these guys were, were Jewish that had come to believe in Jesus. They're amazed because they had never seen the Holy Spirit uh, be given to anyone who wasn't previously Jewish. They were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And then verse 46 acts as the the physical proof of this receiving of the Holy Spirit. It says that they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And we don't know what it looked like for them to be speaking in tongues or what, what extolling God means here, but the commentaries I studied this week were in agreement that whatever the substance of what the, the people who received the Spirit were saying here, whatever the substance of that was, it would have been something that had previously been witnessed by believers of the early church following the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So this would have been, it acted as the, the physical proof of the receiving of the Spirit here. You know, we don't have in this moment the, the visible tongues of fire coming down like we see early in Acts on the day of Pentecost. And so the speaking of the words here, the, the speaking of tongues, acted as that proof of the authenticity of the Spirit's coming. And Peter acknowledges this as being authentic in verse 47. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So the Gentiles in our text were chosen by God to hear the message of the gospel and upon hearing it, they, they believed and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then through baptism, they were able to make the outward expression that there had been an inward transformation in their hearts. <clears throat> and as I said earlier, when I started looking at this passage, uh, it just seemed huge. Just 
there was just so much there. And as I was, as I was studying it, I kept seeing more avenues I could go down and more things I felt like I could say. And I was telling this to Daniel, and he said, even with a, a passage of three verses, he feels like that sometimes. The Bible is just so rich. But as I continue to study and preparing this message, I kept coming back to what I mentioned earlier, that I see in this passage the transition from that, um, gosh, I just lost the word. I didn't write it down because I was going to say it again. Sorry. From that, the, the Mosaic Covenant, which was conditional, there we go, the conditional Mosaic Covenant, we see a transition from that to the unconditional Messianic Covenant through Jesus. And we see this alluded to first in Peter's vision with a sheet containing every type of animal and God commanding Peter to go kill and eat, declaring all food clean. And as we said, this was likely a jarring moment for Peter. The same God who had commanded him to follow all these laws, to, to eat and not eat certain things, was now telling him to eat everything. And the reason for this reversal, one commentary puts it, was amounts to a radical change in the way that God relates to his people. The old ways served their purpose, but everything they pointed to had been fulfilled. It is not as though God is speaking out of both sides of his mouth when he tells Peter, a Jew, what God has made clean, do not call common. God has not changed his mind, nor has he come up with a plan B. His unified plan included a time when God's people would eat only certain foods, offer sacrifices, and be exclusively marked by circumcision. But that part of the plan has come to an end. Some things have to be cleared out of the way so that the one people of God, unified by faith in Jesus, can fellowship together. Before Jesus, a Jewish person's faith or their walk with God was characterized by how well they adhered to the law, those 613 commandments and statutes that God had laid before them. They were to follow these commandments in order to be connected to the people of God. And if they broke one of those laws, they were to offer a certain type of sacrifice in order to, to pay atonement or the price of that sin. The law was what set God's people apart from the rest of the nations. And unless you underwent the specific conversion rites to become Jewish, you were not counted as among God's people. You didn't have the opportunity to be among those he claimed as his. And then God sent Jesus, and it changed everything. We see in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says in reference to the law that, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I loved what the ESV study Bible had to say about, about this verse, about Matthew 5, 17. It gives such an awesome summation of Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets. It says that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament and that it all points to him, not only in the specific predictions of a Messiah, but also in its sacrificial system, which looked forward to his great sacrifice of himself. In the many events in the history of Israel, which, which foreshadowed his life as God's true son, in the laws which only he perfectly obeyed, and in the wisdom literature which sets forth a behavioral pattern that his life exemplified. Jesus' gospel of the kingdom does not replace the Old Testament, but rather fulfills it as Jesus' life and ministry, coupled with his interpretation, complete and clarify God's intent and meaning in the entire Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies given of the promised Messiah. Jesus obeyed perfectly all the laws, commandments, and statutes given to God's people. 
And Jesus served as the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of his people. And we see in our passage today that that definition of the term his people is no longer just the people of Israel. It is no longer just those who follow the 613 laws and commandments given to them. God has called all who believe in Jesus clean. We see here a transition from that Mosaic covenant to the Messianic covenant in Jesus, a shift from a covenant which said, you will be my people and I will be your God if you do these things, if you follow these rules and avoid these things, and a shift to a covenant in Jesus that says that Jesus fulfilled the law, that he died as the ultimate and final sacrifice to pay the price for every sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed. And he did it all not because of what you've done for him and what you promised you will do, or what rules you followed, but because of his love for you. And as we celebrated last week on Easter, Jesus didn't stay dead either. He defeated both sin and death and raised from the grave. He made the final claim of authority and final claim of his authority and of his fulfillment of the law through his resurrection. This messianic covenant, this new covenant in Jesus is not conditional. There's nothing that we have to do, nothing that we can do to earn it. We don't have to work hard enough or try hard enough. Uh, we don't have to worry about what foods we can and can't eat. We don't have to be physically set apart through circumcision to be counted among God's people. We don't have to live in our own little Christian communes or make our own nation. And we certainly don't need to create even more laws and rules on top of what scripture says for us to be saved. In fact, Titus 3, 5 through 7 says this, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Likewise, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is a gift. And when we try to earn it for ourselves, we distort it from this beautiful thing that was given to us until we, we distort it into this thing that we no longer fully understand. This was at least certainly, this has been my experience at least, uh, in earlier in my life and earlier in my, my walk of faith. I grew up in the church and I came to believe in Jesus at a, a young age and uh, called myself a Christian. Uh, but to me, a big part of being a Christian, where I found my identity as a Christian was in being good, was in doing good things, avoiding bad things, uh, being a relatively good student. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for laughing at that. <laughs> uh, being a relatively good student, being involved in youth group, being a leader in my youth group. Uh, and you better believe that I allowed myself to feel prideful about that too. Oh, I'm good. I'm better than so-and-so. I'm doing these good things. Look at me. What a great Christian I am. But then as, uh, as many stories go, I went off to college. <laughs> and all the eyes of those people whose opinions I'd come to care about, whose uh, opinions of me as being the source of where I found uh, my fulfillment of, of deserving this salvation from God were no longer there. They weren't watching me anymore. I no longer had these people there giving me the approval I'd come to need in order to feel like I was correctly living my life for Jesus. Somewhere along the way growing up, to some degree, 
I felt like I needed to earn what God had given me. But it didn't feel possible to earn something without the acknowledgement of those people around me, building me up and making me you know, prideful. Uh, without these eyes around me that I cared about so much, I lost my motivation to be good. Because now I could be whatever I wanted to be, right? If that was where I found my identity, where I found the, the, the authenticity of my salvation and those people's reactions, and it was gone, there was nothing driving me to, to live my life for Jesus. I could be whatever I wanted to be, I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I could still put on the good face when I visited home. But that's not living a life for Jesus. And that's not what being saved is supposed to look like. Now, thank God I learned from some of my mistakes. <laughs> thank God that he pulled me out of uh, that situation and gave me a season of life with less distractions, less obstacles in my way where I got to focus and heal my relationship with him. Uh, and then, praise God, he brought my wife, Caroline, and I here to the Mountain Church. And I remember early on, some seven years ago, hearing for the first time, really hearing it, the gospel be preached. It may not have been the first time the words were spoken to me, but it was the first time that God really penetrated my heart with what he was saying. And similarly to Peter learning that he could now eat bacon, my mind was blown. <laughs> it changed everything for me. I heard the good news that God didn't want me to just be good. He didn't want me to earn this gift as if he held it out in front of me for something to chase. He died for me because he loves me and because he chose me to be his and he puts his goodness on me. This truth has radically changed my relationship with God. Seeing his salvation as a gift rather than something to earn has eliminated this immense pressure from my life. I get to live my life for him because of what he's done for me, not so that I can earn this thing that he has for me to, to take. What an, what an immense joy. Friends, we don't have to and we cannot earn our salvation. Instead, we get to enjoy living our lives for Jesus, finding our satisfaction in him, living each day for him. We get to live out of his love for us, serving him not to earn what he's given, but in response to his love for us and our love for him because he has called us clean and because he has called us his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good, Lord. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us who could never deserve or earn your love. God, thank you that the only reason that we are even capable of loving you is because you first loved us. God, thank you for the sacrifice of sending your son to earth to die on the cross for our sins, God. Thank you for dying on the, the cross for sins that we committed directly against you, Lord. God, thank you that because you have saved us, that because we don't have to do enough to earn the salvation, that we just get to live our lives satisfied by you, doing, doing things for you, doing things out of our love for you, not to earn something, but because we want to see your, your love, your kingdom advance in all the earth, Lord. God, I ask that this, this reality would shape the way that we live, that it would, it would shape the way that we, we speak about you, that it would shape the way that we, we go about our everyday lives. God, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.